Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Pfizer has announced that their vaccine is 95% effective without any serious side effects. What are the next steps? Well, we'll talk about that. Ontario's long-term care home workers are choosing to leave their jobs over risks that they're going through on their everyday work because of COVID-19. It's a pretty troubling situation. We'll explain it to you. And Heinz is returning to Canada, but is that enough to win the Canadians back that were ticked off at them for leaving five years ago? We'll get into that with Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Pfizer has now announced that it is finished with its clinical data and that its vaccine has now a 95% effective rate. This is, of course, piggybacking on the announcement they made last week uh, with a 90% rate, but uh, they said there have been no serious side effects and uh, things are looking good. Now, how excited should we be about this? Should this be guarded optimism? Uh, we want to get some perspective on this, and to that end, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Rodney Rohde, uh, Professor and Chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions at Texas State University. Uh, doctor, great to have you back on the program. Uh, first question, I guess, uh, how excited should we be about the Pfizer announcement today? Thanks, Bill, for having me on. Good morning. Good. Um, you know, one of the great things about this is that I think we do have a reason to be excited about it. Uh, this comes from new technology. These vaccines, both Pfizer and Moderna, are using a process that utilizes a substance called messenger RNA. And for those of your audience who may not know what that is, messenger RNA is a, a product that the human body actually does produce uh, while it's creating proteins. But what the companies have done is they've utilized a way to inject the body with a vaccine that contains this messenger RNA that will trick the body's immune system into thinking it's making a viral protein that sits on the outside of the coronavirus. So it's not a living virus or anything like that. It's a very safe uh, way of doing things. And it's, it's exciting to me because it's a brand new technology and it really offers, I think, a lot of hope for future issues. So this is, a, this is really great news for future uh, outbreaks and epidemics that might allow us to create vaccines, you know, within six to six months to a year. This is this is unheralded. Usually this process can take years uh, sometimes to get it done. So that's very exciting. Uh, the other exciting thing about both the Pfizer and the bio uh, and the Moderna vaccine, which you've mentioned, they both are now showing uh, roughly 95 percent coverage. Uh, they've used about, each one is used between 30 to 40,000 volunteers, and that covers demographics of, one of them had demographics in the close to 40% of, of different ethnicities. They had thousands of people over the age of 65. They had thousands of people that had high risk factors, and in those both those trials, uh, we have over 95% of coverage. And really the only side effects they're reporting now so far is um, headaches, a little bit of muscle pain, and really just within a day or two after the vaccine does go away. So it's, it's great news. Um, again, we always are going to watch the final data as they publish that. But right now there is reason for uh, optimism. 
I, I'm just looking. Obviously, we haven't seen all the, the data, and they haven't released all of it at, at this point, as you know. They me. haven't. They've gotten basically what they've done is, and this is kind of typical, they've, they've released press releases, and they keep yeah. highlighting it. They are letting people look at it, but eventually that will be published uh, and able to be peer-reviewed by lots of scientists and other people. But they are moving ahead. I think you probably saw this morning mm-hmm. with uh, emergency use uh, in the coming days, they're going to apply both in the U.S. and globally. So we'll see where that goes because that takes a lot of proof and, and transparency with their data. You uh, did say that there are thousands and thousands of people in the study group here, and uh, what Pfizer is announcing this morning is that of that group, uh, only 170 infections were found, and eight of them were in uh, the volunteers who actually got the vaccine. The majority, of course, were in the placebos. That's that's pretty encouraging. It's very encouraging, and really both. Uh, I was looking at both of those again this morning. Uh, just looking at the data a little closer, it's also encouraging that um, what they call severe illness, those that you know tend to get to very severe illness, those uh, didn't really happen in the vaccine group, but it did happen in the placebo group. So it looks like it's even protecting uh, very severe coronavirus illness. The one thing the vaccines don't show us, and really there's no way to know this, nobody can tell you this up front, is how long. Mm-hmm. Uh, the vaccine will last. But, you know, that's that's just you have to wait and see what happens with the data and, and kind of track it over a year or two as it's being used. I, I want, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I don't want people to get the impression, that, hey, this is incredible. Boy, it's, roll up my sleeve. This is this is imminent. The, the time frame that I think you discussed with us a few weeks ago, doctor, uh, that it's probably going to be in the latter part of 2021 that this is going to be available. Is, 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 as I understand it this morning, uh, still the reality here. I mean, you know that they're going to do emergency use, but for the general public, we have a ways to go here. Right. You're absolutely right, Bill. I think in, in all kind of situations that you read about and, and think about with this when you talk to the, the experts is that if if it gets emergency use approval, the first the first people that will get this will likely be my colleagues in the in the healthcare trenches mm-hmm. to kind of protect those first line responders because we can't replace, as we've talked about, we can't replace nurses and doctors and medical laboratorians easily. Then it probably moves into the high risk categories of elderly Uh, maybe targeted groups in nursing homes. I know you've talked a lot about that on your show. That is a very hot spot. Uh, Maybe schools, you know, just to kind of help with uh, asymptomatic carriers uh, and younger people that tend to be, uh, tend to be more vector based. They tend to spread it quite, quite rapidly. So I think for the general person, uh, you know, it might be late spring, summer, or even moving into the fall. But if we can get this distributed to, again, with everything, that we know if it works and, and what we hope it works, if we can get it distributed to, you know, millions and millions of people and, and most of the population, it will help tap down uh, at least next year's um, winter you know, surge that might be coming. That's 21. Doctor, I want to remind folks, too, that the Pfizer uh, vaccine that we're talking about, the the one that we first found out about last week, this is the one that has to be stored at ridiculously low temperatures. I think it's minus 100 or something like that. How problematic is that going to be for distribution? Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. Um, So this one, both of them, by the way, take two doses. So it's uh, day zero whenever you get it, and then 28 days later you get a booster. So there is two. That's also sometimes problematic. You're going to have to get people to come back for that second booster dose about 28 days later. And Pfizer, uh, their vaccine does, I think, require around minus 70, minus 80 C, which is very cold. Again, if your audience doesn't know, 
what that means. It means about the temperature of dry ice. Um, so they, they have developed, according to their website, they've developed a storage unit that will ship it with dry ice that will keep it uh, viable for days so that you can transport it around the world. But I think in all in all instances, that's still going to be a challenge when you start thinking about places like India and Africa and places that are really warm, uh, the Middle East and things like that, if you're trying to get it you know, to every single person. But I, again, I think if you can get this thing out, whichever, the other great news is there might be two of them uh, mm-hmm. to utilize. And so we may have higher volume and, um, you know, I'm going to remain positive that we have, we have some data to still look at and see what happens in the coming probably month or so to see what, what goes down. Well, we're getting more and more information almost on a daily basis now, which is awfully encouraging as well. Uh, Doctor, I want to thank you, sir, for taking some time so early in the morning here to try to bring us up to speed on this. It's a pretty exciting day, but uh, as you mentioned, there's a long road yet to go. But uh, we can see that light now. It's a little closer than it was a few months ago. Thanks for this, Doctor. It it is encouraging, Bill, and thanks as always. And just a reminder to your audience and everywhere that this still means – you obviously need to be thinking about protecting yourself in the coming months by following exactly. all the standard health precautions. Exactly. A perfect way to end the conversation, as always. Doctor, thanks so much again. We'll stay in touch. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We knew there was going to be a second wave. It's worse than we thought it was going to be. And and then, you know, you get governments up there doing everything in half measures. Well, we'll look into that. Yeah, we're really trying hard. Yeah, we should do more testing. Sure, we should. But you're not cracking down the way you're supposed to, like other jurisdictions have done. And it's not as if there's no precedent for it. You look at the way places like New Zealand and Australia and Hong Kong and other countries that have not just flattened the curve, they wiped the curve out because they, right from the beginning, said this is the way it's going to be. And and there were no variations on that. And it works. Yeah, it's tough for a few weeks. But it's, 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 it stems the tide, and that's what we're trying to do here. And, and it's not happening here in Ontario. And maybe one of the places, maybe the worst example of what the second wave is all about are the long-term care facilities. And the numbers here are staggering. Confusing messages from the, the minister that, that really bother an awful lot of people. And look at the numbers here. These are the Hamilton numbers, and it's just as bad in many other places. St. Josephsville and Dundas, 38 cases, one death. Hamilton Continuing Care, 125 Wentworth Street, 35 cases, four deaths. Uh, Baywood Place, uh, 29 cases, one death. Villages of Wentworth, uh, where are we got 14 infections and two deaths. Hamilton has 21 deaths in 15 days in seniors' residences. That's not good. It's terrible. And what's being done about it? Well, some hand-wringing. And, you know, the idea about, well, we're going to try to get more people into the business. Well, uh, that's that's not a bad idea for the long term, but it not, it's not helping today. It's not going to help tomorrow either. I want to bring uh, Bill Van Gorder into the conversation. Bill is the Chief Policy Officer pro tem with uh, CARP, the Canadian Association for Retired Folks, and a strong advocate for getting the work done and the job done here. Uh, Bill, glad you could join us on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for calling. How frustrated is it for you guys at CARP to, to see this? I talked to you about this in the first wave, and we said, boy, we hopefully we've learned our lesson, and you know, when the second wave hits, uh, we'll be ready. <laughs> Bill, we weren't ready. We, we are not ready. We're not, uh, we've not learned by what happened eight months ago. Uh, the promises that we've had from government have been years uh, 
years away. Some of the promises that that were in the budget last week, they said, would take place in, in 2025. We've got people dying right now in long-term care. And what's the Ministry of Long-Term Care? What's the minister? What's the premier uh, doing about? We knew it was a disaster in the, in the making. We knew we had inadequate facilities. We knew that inspections were spotty. We knew that staffing was insufficient. We knew that PPEs were not available to staff like they should be. We, we talked about this seven months ago, and we're still talking about it today. Unconscionable. Well, let's talk about staffing for just a second, because that seems to be one of the major problems among a long list of them. Uh, and I know that we talked with Doris Greenspan, who's the, the CEO for the Registered Nurses Association, uh, and they asked her about staffing. And she says, people have left this industry in droves after the first wave of this whole thing, because it's not safe. Uh, the money's terrible. They're getting run down. They're getting overworked. It's no wonder the government's talking about recruitment. Uh, but that's... And you're points well taken bill they they said that that's not going to actually happen and we're not going to see the fruits of that for at least another two two and a half years what about what about this week exactly what about this week now people are leaving for two reasons because they're they're over they're overworked they don't feel appreciated and they don't feel they're being protected all of those we could do something about that the government could do something about right now the first is ppes we heard from one of our cart members uh, in uh, in london who said that she wasn't going to go to work anymore because she was only allowed one N95 mask a day, and she had to take that off five or six times a day through a shift for various uh, reasons. She has to have a break, lunch, uh, take a rest, those, those reasons. Yet we're expecting, we're, we're being told by the government that everybody now has enough uh, PPEs. Well, you and I, any of us who do woodworking, know that the N95 mask is the same kind of thing that we use for dust in our in our workshop. We mm-hmm. know if we go through a heavy uh, sanding or sawing period, we put on a new mask. They don't last all day. If you and I know this, Bill, why doesn't the government know this? And how can they say there's now and brag about the amount of PPE when they're not supplying it to the frontline workers? And then no wonder the frontline workers don't want to stay working anymore i mean who of us would say i know it's unsafe uh, i know i'm not going to be properly equipped to do this but i'm going to go in there and i'll answer my own question in the first wave just about all of them uh, and they yep. they sacrificed immensely i mean this is this is not the staff itself that are the problem the staff are very dedicated at this and they they went above and beyond in so many different ways but boy bill uh, somebody can only take so much until yeah, they start yeah. saying I, I can't do this anymore this is just too much for me and that, and that's what, uh, what's happening. They're, they're over, they're overworked, uh, and they just, they just can't go back at the game. They don't, and even though they want to, and they feel badly. Well, we talk to people who are doing that feel horrible because they're leaving their, their family, their friends as they consider the people that they work with in long-term care, but they just physically and mentally can't do it, uh, any, any longer. And, uh, and so that not only do we have to re- have more, uh, people on the front line, but we've got to replace these people who are uh, leaving, and we've seen no activity at all that really shows that the government, and in some cases the facilities themselves, are really doing what's necessary to keep their staff uh, working and providing the care to our loved ones in long-term care facilities. You know, one of the other things that I'd really like to see here is some data about exactly why this is happening and, and, and some numbers to, to substantiate that. I don't know if you saw the daily briefing yesterday with the Premier and uh, three or four of his I ministers. Did, yeah. 
uh, and they talked about long-term care, and, and the Premier was bemoaning the fact that his, his wife, uh, whose mother is in one of these facilities, uh, she had to wait, I think he said, about five or six days for uh, testing results after she was tested, you know, so she could go and visit. And that is a problem. I get that. You know, the, yeah, we do need to do something about that. But, Bill, they're not talking about the spread of the virus with, within the facility. I mean, if the insinuation the Premier, premier was making was that all of the, the infections are coming from outside, uh, I'm not so sure that's the case. I, I mean, if it is, show me. And, and they, then they could do, there, there are some things they can do, limitation, et cetera, right. or, you know, PPE for the people yeah, that are yeah, going to visit. They, but they what about the they, spread? What about the exact, what's going on in the building itself? Uh, they, have they addressed that at all? Yeah, they, they have not. They can't give the kind of numbers that you, uh, you're asking uh, for. They don't uh, know. What we, what we do know, though, is that uh, uh, much of the spread is, is getting into long-term care homes where it wasn't before, which means it has to be getting in there in some way, and it doesn't live for, for, for days and months after it's, it's inside. So we know that it's getting in. The, 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 you know, the, the key uh, solution overall is to reduce the overall uh, COVID in in the province, and to do that, we've got to go right back to uh, basics. And and for you know, this is where the rest of us need to be a part of it. We have to wear our masks, wash our hands, self uh, self distance, make sure that we're we're following those uh, rules, and then make sure that uh, when we do visit our loved ones in in long-term care or when we're a staff who are working in them that we're doing our very best to make sure that we're not uh, carrying it in we all have a part in this but we don't we don't even see the government uh, supporting more uh, more supervision that even that is happening uh, that's a basic thing that could have been done in terms of making sure there's testing for everybody who's going in and out of those facilities I mean, we can talk about stats here, and they're troubling in and of itself. But I want to, you know, connect the dots here, Bill, and 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 start to go back to a couple of the inquiries we had, including the independent inquiry that that, that happened over the summer months, uh, where the residents themselves, the family members uh, who have people in in these facilities, loved ones in these facilities, talked about some of the living conditions, about being overcrowded, about having four people in one area, uh, about uh, hygiene, you know, about not getting diapers changed or not getting drinks of water, any any long number of things like that. Uh, That's got nothing to do with testing. That's the quality of service. And it comes right back to staffing and and, and the number of people that are going to be available to help these people. It, it does. And, and, uh, you know, the, the uh, commission doesn't have to report under their terms of reference till April, but they found those things were, were, uh, were so bad that actually the last time you and I talked, Bill, we were talking about they put out an, an unasked for interim report that said to the government, here are eight different things that are being done poorly or wrong. They've got to be fixed now. And we haven't seen ev- any evidence that the ministry have, uh, long-term care has has moved to make real change in any of those areas. We think there has to be huge changes right at that level. The Ministry of Long-Term Care, uh, it's not working. Uh, you know, uh, Marilee Fulton may be a wonderful lady with 30, uh, 30 years experience as a doctor. She's not being an effective minister of long-term care. The staff working for her, being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, are not uh, uh, supporting properly. Uh, we don't know why the premier hasn't moved to make real changes at the top levels of uh, the long-term care ministry to make sure some of these actions actually happen. 
Let, let's give them the benefit of the doubt for just a second. I, I, okay, I, I won't doubt the Premier's good intentions here. I think he wants to see this problem fixed. Maybe even the minister does. I, I don't know that minister at all, but let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Where's the commitment to do, make it happen? Where's the commitment to say, I don't care what it costs, this has to be fixed. These are the frail and elderly in our society. They're the ones that are being most negatively impacted by this. Something has to be done. And, and yeah. we don't need platitudes at this stage. You don't no. need five-year plans. We need five-minute plans to say, oh, wait, we're going in there tomorrow, and we're going to fix this. No, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, Ontario is the only province that has a dedicated ministry of long-term care, and we've got one of the worst records for how our long-term care is working in the province. There's something the matter there because action just isn't happening. The track record is terrible. There's no evidence of you say uh, of anything other than lethargy, inaction, un unresponsiveness. Uh, there has to be action now. And I'm sure the premier uh, uh, wants to put this all behind him. We, we all do. But why isn't he putting his thumb down and demanding that action start, real action start happening? I don't think there's one person in this province, Bill, that, that would be upset about tax dollars being spent to fix a problem like this. And I know the price tags for some of the stuff we're going to have to do here in COVID are, are enormous. And, and yeah. you know, the federal government's running an unprecedented deficit. Our provincial government is running an unprecedented deficit. And, and they're saying, well, you know, we have to do what we have to do here. But are they doing everything that they have to do and everything that's necessary? Because uh, the numbers are indicating that we're not winning. And and it's the same argument, I guess, Bill, that we've had about government for years, long before COVID came along. It's not how much you spend, it's where you spend it. And, and you know, I know they're talking the talk here, but looking at these statistics from long-term care facilities, is this really a priority for them? It, does, it, uh, it certainly doesn't seem to be a priority for action. It may be a priority for concerns, for platitudes, for uh, speeches and pronouncements, but what we're not seeing is actual actions doing something uh, to uh, to uh, decrease the the deficiencies if, if you like the, the poor infection control the the uh, the lack of the lack of staffing and now the support of those wonderful frontline staff who are doing their very best but feel like they're working in a vacuum with with no extra help either physically or uh, or or mentally the anxiety that those people are feeling as as they try to give care to their uh their their own patients their loved ones in uh, that they do love in the long-term care care facilities they're not seeing any action uh whether whether or not you or i bill see action uh is is one thing when we know that the people who are actually delivering the care feel that nothing's being done then we know there's a problem well and i know and this is a sad reality but i know that there are some people that hear the voices and the voices are many and they are loud uh, you know yourself of course and the great work that you're doing with carp uh, we mentioned a few minutes ago about doris grinspun from the uh, registered nurses associate right. people like yeah. natalie mira and so many others that have been vocal about this for the longest time uh, there as you say even an interim report been established now to say these things have to be fixed immediately so there's no lack of information uh, and i know some people are dismissive of some of those voices and say well yeah they're just union reps you know what they're like all the time they're talking about working conditions this is life or death this is not hey we'd like an extra couple of bucks an hour hey we want more time off this this is come on let's put this in perspective people are leaving this industry because it's not safe uh and and if that's the case that means the level of care which was already precarious has become worse exactly yeah 
uh, we, we there's there's a couple of things that uh, uh, the government could do uh, right now, and 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 we don't understand uh, why they're not uh, doing it. One is uh, we know there are too few people doing multiple uh, jobs on on the front front lines. Bring in people now. Is that the armed forces again? Is that other agencies, Red Cross, whomever, do something to bring more people onto the front line? Secondly, make sure that the staff have the PPE that they need, the masks and other things that they need and want. Make them feel comfortable, even if it's stretching your theoretical uh, ideas about what they need. Give them more so they're comfortable and not full of anxiety when they're when they're doing their jobs. And finally, uh, training and resources for infection control. As, as, as you said, Bill, the big problem is infection is getting into the long-term care residences. Find out what that is. Make sure that there are infection control officers in every location and they're doing everything possible to make sure the infections don't get into the facility. And we don't believe that's as hard to do if they put their mind to it as they seem to think it is. Well, and again, it comes down to perspective and where your priorities are. I mean, I'm sure you saw the story earlier this week uh, with some government agency. I can't remember. They they they, is- they issued the uh, the release about the price tag of how much it costs for the Canadian military to step in this spring as they yeah. did in long-term care facilities. And, and it was a significant number, but I thought, yeah. you know what, you've missed the headline. I don't care how much it costs. How many lives did you save because exactly. of that? Yeah. And, 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 that wasn't and, even in the story. It was yeah, like, look yeah. at the money they're spending. Yeah, so what? That, yeah, well, and and a lot of that, you know, the problem with that story was a lot of that money would have been spent anyway because those 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 forces were already employed. Yeah, it's just that that happened to be where they they were uh, they were active. Well, that that's what happens all the time. That's a that's a uh, that's a, a a story that has no meaning to the real problem that we're uh, talking about. As you said earlier, uh, all the surveys show that Canadians. The Ontarioans are happy to spend or are content to spend whatever money is necessary to stop this thing now. And uh, money should not be the criteria for what we do and what we don't. It's 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 just a matter of saying, look at let's you know this this matters to us. You know these are our loved ones, these are our, our, our you know aunts, uncles, whatever it is in, in situations like this, and and they're looking at us right now. I mean you know they don't have a voice. I mean you're their voice. You know Carp is their voice, and these these other folks that have stepped up are their voice. But you know they've got to be awfully frustrated to be in these facilities to begin with and see the living conditions and think yeah. it's it's not getting any better. I and, you know it, and you know as well as I do when you're talking about public health. If if you become depressed and sad, it makes it that much more difficult. And I can't understand why more that, that we heard those stories too about the depression that's setting in with staff and with residents because of the the conditions in which they live. Absolutely, and you know uh, because there's been uh, no action, uh, and and because the government seem to be ignoring those of us who are speaking out on these issues, what. What CARP is really doing and, and, and urging everybody who cares about this issue, get in touch with your local elected officials and tell them how you as a voter feel and what you want to be done. Because maybe that's the only way the premier and the minister of long-term care and the minister of health are going to hear what people really think if they realize that the voters who are putting in their supporters across the province 
are really concerned about that uh, issue. And it's not just you and I uh, being concerned. It's almost everybody in this province wants things to change and they want improvements now. Well, we're waiting, and we've been waiting for a long time right now. He's hoping that the government finally does get the message. Uh, I know you guys aren't going to give up, Bill. Thanks so much for the time today. We'll certainly stay in touch on this. We sure will, Bill. Thank you very much. Bill Van Gorder, of course, Chief Policy Officer uh, with CARP, the Canadian Association for Retired Folks, with the dilemma, the crisis that's happening in long-term care facilities here in this province, and the government has to step up. And again, there's got to be some coordination here. I mean, you know, we mentioned about the military being a part of this. Uh, and then you've got the premiers just the other day telling the federal government, hey, back off. This is, this is our turf. We'll handle this. It's got to be a coordinated effort here, gang, or it's just not going to work. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The big news announced yesterday, Heinz ketchup uh, production is coming back to Canada. Uh, which may not be a big deal. Some of the people in Leamington, uh, just down the road in the 401, because uh, well, they're still pretty ticked off about what happened about five years or so ago. But uh, it's being held in some circles as a really positive move for the the economy. Marvin Ryder joins us from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton to weigh in on this and, and another thing that we're going to talk about with Huawei in a second. Uh, Marvin, great to have you back in the program. Were you surprised by the uh, the Heinz announcement? <laughs> well, yes. Uh, let me say, at a business school, one of the courses that we teach here is called business strategy. And we've seen a couple of weird examples of business strategy in play. You saw one just a couple of weeks ago with the uh, Unifor negotiations with Chrysler when a year ago they shut down a plant and now they're going to reopen it and build trucks there. And the same thing five years ago, I think it was actually maybe even six years ago in Leamington, Kraft said for an economy reason, we're going to consolidate all of our ketchup making in our plant in the United States. And then yesterday they reversed that and said, no, we've just spent some money in Quebec and we're going to start making ketchup in Montreal. And you go, what? Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Why did you go to the one direction and now you're coming back? I think maybe we can credit the government in Quebec. Apparently they contributed some money to Heinz to help uh, install the technology to, to do ketchup in Montreal. And even now, although it's going to be manufactured in Montreal for the first two years, i.e. 2021 and 2022, it's going to be made using American tomato paste. So it's made in Canada, but with American tomato paste. Then Heinz says by 2023, they're going to start buying Canadian tomatoes again. So it's, it's an odd move. And, and if they weren't going to be fully Canadian, I think I might have reopened that line quietly rather than loudly until they could say we're actually using Canadian tomatoes in the production of things. Well, I'm going to, in the interest of full disclosure, tell you right now that uh, our family's boycotted Heinz Ketchup since they made that announcement. It's almost six years ago now uh, because I thought it was a backhanded move. And it, it uh, obviously, you know, the people in Leamington uh, are, are pretty ticked off about this. Right. Uh, but and, and I'm not the only Canadian that boycotted them because they Heinz did lose market share. Not significant. I mean, they're not going out of business by any stretch of the imagination. But a lot of people, like my family, switched to French's as a result and said, to heck with you guys. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you're right. Uh, they were 95% of the market, and now they're 91% or 90% of the market. But so here was a little upstart company who said, I'm going to vote for Canada. I'm going to support Canada by, by filling the void that Heinz left and uh, proudly made in Canada, supported as well by uh, some other 
food chains out there. I think Harvey's or maybe it was A&W uh, switched to French's ketchup as well to support them. And I think that's great. It's just, the funny part of this story is not so much that they're going to start making ketchup in Montreal, but they're making it with American tomato paste. Mm-hmm. So then why are you announcing this? Keep it quiet. Until you can actually say we've seen the light, we we you know we're we're supporting Canada the way we should, then we'd cheer them. But I think this is like another slap in the face in a way. Well, it's a slap in the face to the people in Leamington because I know the first reaction that I heard from a lot of the folks in that town uh, when this was announced was, uh, "Why are you going to Montreal? What's the matter with where you were?" Well, and more importantly, uh, if you look at where most of the tomatoes in in Canada are grown, it's in southwestern Ontario. Yeah. But the really the western part of southwestern Ontario, the Leamington, uh, Sarnia, Windsor, that area that gets the extra bit of sunshine, what have you, that's where the tomatoes are. Wouldn't you want to build the plant close to where the raw materials are? Uh, and again, at the moment, because they're using tomato paste from the United States, then yes, that doesn't make any difference where they put it. But in the fullness of time, if by 2023 they want to start using Canadian tomatoes, you've got to truck them a gigantic distance to get them there. It doesn't quite make sense to me. But this is a large multinational firm. There are other forces at play. It's just not always strategy that is apparent to my eyes. And I I know the the initial answer to my question is, well, you know, as you just mentioned, the Quebec government probably ponied up a fair bit of money to help them do this. Uh, but I'm sure the Ontario government would have done had they been asked the same thing. I, I, know, I, I can't see the Ford government saying, no, we're not going to do that, go someplace else. Uh, so I'm assuming they weren't even asked. Well, especially during this time of COVID, uh, you know, if I'm, if I, whether I'm Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Ford, or in this case, Mr. Legault in the province of Quebec, I'm looking for some good economic news that I can tout, given all the other problems from COVID. So I'm sure they would have had that support. And I, again, I don't really understand why Kraft wouldn't have considered that. Now, as I do understand it, uh, Montreal has a, a Kraft factory, Kraft Heinz factory, that produces a lot of other products. So they aren't building a factory from scratch. They're basically expanding the production capabilities in an existing factory. In the case of Leamington, they had sold that plant. It was no longer there, so they'd have to either get it back or build from scratch. It's probably easier to do this uh, in Quebec, and thus the marginal cost is lower. But, you know, I just, I, I think it's great that they're coming back. Uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, in many ways, it's a great company, and it makes a lot of products that we all enjoy eating from the Kraft and Heinz families, whether it's craft uh, dinner or, or, you know, craft uh, steak sauces or whatever it happens to be. I just, um, it, it's, you're winning a battle, but at the same time losing the victory, I think. Well, and, and again, I know this may not be a big deal when it comes to economics and marketing, but uh, if I could quote Terrier from Fiddler on the Roof, tradition. Uh, they were in Leamington for over 100 years, which yeah. is what really stung when they made that announcement in 2014. Yeah, now, I, I, Bill, you may or may not re- remember that I grew up in a small town in Ontario called Aylmer, A-Y-L-M-E-R, and that was where Canadian canners had a factory, and the Aylmer brand that you used to see on various vegetables and products, that came from my hometown. Now, they had a fire, unfortunately, and that plant eventually did move down more into the Leamington area, but, you know, the, these, some of these brands have long, long histories in Canada, and, I, I, you know, you, in trying to figure out what's best for the business, you also have to recognize your heritage and understand the country that you're operating in. I don't think this is going to make people change their mind. In other words, here you are as a boycotter and supporter of French's. I don't think you're going to change your mind with them nope. coming to Montreal. 
uh, and then vice versa. If you didn't care about the story in the first place, you're not going to care that they came back. So it's just funny they chose to make the publicity statement they did yesterday. Well, yeah, I'm not ready for reconciliation. I mean, they got a long way to go to, to try to win, I think, a lot of consumers back. And, and like I say, I, I, I'm doing this on principle because we're not knocking them down onto their knees. I mean, Heinz is Heinz, and they're going to be fine. And uh, But, I mean, I, I, I went the whole nine yards on this. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, they have a wide variety of products. Uh, I... I buy the French's stuff now, whether it's the relish, the mustard, whatever the case might be, the ketchup. Uh, you know, when you, when you tick somebody off like that, and, and you've seen this, and we've talked about this with other products, uh, once a consumer gets angry, it takes, a, it takes a long, long time or something huge to, to win them back. Yeah, to forgive and forget. They, people, we always talk about elephants having long memories, but people have very long memories too. And when you wound them deeply, uh, they, they, they take a long time to come back. Uh, you know, even here in Hamilton, to use a non-business example, it was 20 years ago that, that I helped create the new city of Hamilton, and there are many people who haven't forgiven me 20 years later. <laughs> when you wound people like this, they, they may get used to something, but it doesn't mean that they like it. Yeah, well, uh, for those people, because I went through that with you at the time, uh, it wasn't your idea to do it, Marvin. It was uh, the, 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 the government. You were, you were the messenger. But anyway, anyway enough about that. Uh, Eric O'Toole, uh, it was the uh, opposition day in Parliament uh, yesterday, and one of the things he brought up was uh, he feels, and his party, the Conservatives feel, that uh, the Trudeau government is still being a little cozy, a nudge-nudge-wink-wink wink with Huawei, and he says it's time to sever the ties once and for all. This is, this is a long, very complicated story, isn't it? Well, I think that last part's really important, that this is a very difficult situation that our federal government finds itself in. And when you're in the opposition and you can just float trial balloons without actually having to do anything about them, it's often easy to float very simple solutions. So his simple solution is this. In 30 days, just tell Huawei they're not going to be involved in our 5G rollout. Come on, do that. Well, Huawei, for good or bad, is a flagship company in China. Uh, I'm going to say to you that I think it does operate somewhat independently from the Chinese government, but because it's such an important company, it's a bit like you know snubbing Tim Hortons to a Canadian, snubbing Huawei to Chinese is not going to be uh, uh, easily accepted. And if you just go back to this whole thing, just look at the relationship we had. Started really simply. We executed an arrest warrant for a woman named Madam Meng, a senior executive in Huawei, and we did that for our good friends, the Americans. Um, within days, two Canadians were arrested, the two Michaels, and it's been mm-hmm. 702 days or so that they have been under arrest in China. When that uh, arrest didn't cause us to release Madam Mung, then what did China do? They boycotted our canola. They boycotted our sweet peas. Uh, they were trying to hurt us economically. And even today, and it's been almost two years since this thing began, the relationship is quite sour. I think if that wasn't going on, Mr. Trudeau would have said, yes, we're going to ban Huawei. That's what the other security partners, part of that Five Eyes agreement, whether that's Australia or whether that's Britain or whether it's the United States, they all are saying, no, we shouldn't have Huawei. But we've got these other things going on. And if we were to ban Huawei now, how would China respond? Uh, you have to think of it like a game of chess. And if they're not, if they if they stop buying our canola and they stop buying our sweet peas because we arrested one person from Huawei, what are they going to do if we ban them from the 5G? So what Mr. Trudeau has done is he's just not released a final statement. He's not said he's going to allow Huawei in. He's not said he's going to ban them because he's trying to get this other part of the the situation sorted out. 
Bill, I'll also say this extradition treaty of Madame Mung is one of the longest in Canadian history. Yeah. My gosh, she and her lawyers are dragging this out and dragging this out and dragging this out. Usually an extradition hearing is held very quickly, and if there's grounds to send the person to whatever country has asked for them to be arrested, you send them on. I would like to see that trial wrapped up one way or another. I'd like to get the Michaels back, and then instantly we could deal with Huawei and 5G. But for Mr. Trudeau, he can't do the one until he's got the other sorted out, at least as far as I can see. Well, there's another element to this as well. As you mentioned, it's over 700 days now. The two Michaels have been incarcerated. Uh, President-elect Biden's first phone call he made after that election was to Justin Trudeau. And uh, I guess they talked about a couple of different things, trade and everything. But the to- this topic of the two Michaels came up because they- there's an indication. Some people seem to feel that uh, that President-elect Biden uh, might be able to be able to intercede in that Chinese situation. So I'm, I'm not sure if it's going to happen. Uh, but oftentimes, when there's a change in government, there seems to be a change in attitude sometimes. And I, I can see that you know the Prime Minister would say, "Look, I'm, I'm not going to screw this up. I mean, let's wait and see what happens." I, and I know Mr. O'Toole is trying to make his argument, and even with back all, you know, the fact that, well, you know, Huawei was, you know, guilty of industrial espionage against Nortel, the Canadian company that went under, and uh, there's, there's some evidence of that, I guess, but it wasn't Huawei that sunk Nortel. They're, they had a lot of other problems besides what was going on and, and what documents might have been leaked. So I, I, that, that might be prologue, but it's not really germane to the decision they're going to have to make here. Yeah, so let me just first deal with the Nortel issue. It's certainly clear that in its last few years, Nortel had some rather poor management, management that was in it for themselves and not in it for the shareholders. Uh, I, I very vividly remember where uh, what was supposed to have been audited financial statements had to be withdrawn and reissued because of some of the shenanigans that were going on. Uh, whether Huawei did industrial espionage is not proven. There's been lots of allegations, but as you know, Bill, in the old story, just because there's smoke doesn't necessarily mean there's fire. And and I can also share that the patents that Nortel had uh, w- were wanted by more than Huawei. As we know, when they eventually sold those patents, that was the most valuable part of, of Nortel's asset base. Mm-hmm. And we had people, I, I had no idea that Google wanted them or that Apple had wanted them. So there were a lot of people who wanted those patents and may very well have been engaging in, uh, I don't want to necessarily call it espionage, but you know, trying to find out some of their Nortel secrets behind the scenes. To connect those two, though, I think is quite wrong. And, and remember again that if you're in opposition, whether you're the NDP or the Conservatives, you have the ability to, to say whatever you want because you don't actually have to implement those things. And in the world we live in today, to try to successfully get the Madam Mung situation wrapped up to get the Michaels home, to get the canola restarted, to get the sweet peas restarted. It would be nice if we had uh, an ally. And and on that front, remember, we arrested Madam Mung because the Americans wanted her. And this, in essence, was the Donald Trump administration. I'm not clear that if, if or not if, when um, Mr. Biden becomes president, whether they're going to have the same interest in pursuing Madam Mung. Heaven forbid that Mr. Biden becomes president and three days later he says, ah, oh, let her go, we don't need her anymore. The pain that Canada went through for that would be immense. Uh, but then the other thing is, no, no, keep going, keep her, we want her, but let me see what I can do to help with the Chinese. And um, uh, I, I think the Chinese feel they've got a uh, better administration to deal with than the Trump administration, whether they would be 
willing to give us something through Mr. Biden? I don't know, but it'd be nice to have another ally on our side. Well, yeah, and I, I know we're just about out of time here, but I think there's an inevitability here. I I, I do think that, that Canada is going to move on from Huawei when it comes to 5G, but not yet but because of the politics that's involved. I mean, and the five eyes, you know, our, our allies there are, are putting immense pressure on. Remember, you and I had the discussion a few months ago that Boris Johnson announced that he was going to forge a partnership with them, and what was that, about a week later, he says, well, wait, on second thought, yeah. uh, and he put a sunset clause in it and say, okay, for a couple of years, but then that's it, we're going someplace else. I, I can see something like that happening here too he had also tried to bracket it and say we're going to let them do 5g but in non-sensitive areas so 5g for the government 5g for the military no huawei equipment can be used but 5g for netflix or downloading whatever you're doing at home sure we could let them do that and he has as you say he's backed away from it a bit he says well we can let them in for a little while but that's not really the long-term solution i suspected that's what canada was going to do if it didn't have Madame Mung, if it didn't have the Michaels involved, but we do, and therefore our situation is different than our allies, and Mr. Trudeau's got to try to finesse it. And I think with Mr. O'Toole, this is a key word he'll have to learn if he does become prime minister, finesse. Playing this little game of international strategic chess is not an easy thing to do. And as you've reminded us, uh, it's it sounds simplistic to say boot Huawei out. Huawei's already got a strong foothold in this country, even if it's not with 5G. Uh, it's other products. I mean, there's a lot of people walking around with, har- with software and hardware from Huawei. Uh, you can't make that go away. Well, and here's, uh, sorry to bore you here with this, Bill, but one more thing. Huawei has been involved in both the 3G implementation and 4G implementation, and to date, We've had no problems with them breaching security, sharing information, you know, doing things that we're worried about with 5G. So they've not, they've not demonstrated any problems in the past. In a way, we are tarnishing them with our expectations rather than their behaviors. And so I don't think they're going to be allowed for various reasons. But in a way, uh, I, I want to see as much competition as I can because we all feel we're paying too much for, for Internet bandwidth anyway. More competitors and cheaper competitors would be a good thing to have in the marketplace. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for this. And uh, buy French's, not Heinz. Okay, we will do, Bill. Thanks a lot. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.